You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 101, The British Land at Staten Island. The Americans were feeling pretty good about themselves in the spring and summer of 1776. They had chased the British Army out of Boston in March, then declared independence in July. For the Patriots, there was no more bickering over taxing authority in London. The United States were now separate from the British Empire. Britain, though, had no intention of letting this relationship go that easily. After all, you don't build a world empire by giving away an entire continent just because some rebels kill a few hundred of your soldiers. King George and Lord North had spent the winter assembling the largest military force the empire had ever sent overseas. You would think that they would be ready to kick off their military reconquest of North America by April or May, when the spring military season normally began. But for a few reasons, they ended up delaying the whole program. Admiral Richard Howe had been positioning himself in Parliament to lead the expedition. But he wanted diplomatic power, not just military command. The debate inside the ministry took months before they decided that although Howe would head a peace commission, he would have no authority to make any political concessions. He could only grant pardons. Howe did not like the restrictions on his authority and considered walking away. But in the end, this was the mission of a lifetime. Howe was going to save North America for the Empire. He could not walk away from that. Another reason for delay was the assembly of the army and a fleet to carry them. Carrying tens of thousands of troops across the Atlantic was no easy task in 1776. It would require hundreds of transport ships, which the government needed to build, buy, or lease. Producing or acquiring all the arms and equipment took time as well. Britain wanted all of this to arrive at once. They wanted shock and awe, not some slow military buildup over time. Finally, even after London had its army and navy ready to go, along with all the equipment, it faced a series of storms in the Atlantic that spring that delayed passage of most of the fleet for several months. As a result, the British would not be ready to do much of anything before midsummer. By June, General Hal in Halifax was itching to go. It had been three months since he evacuated Boston, and he was ready to redeem himself. On June 29, 1776, most of General Howe's forces reached the waters just off Sandy Hook, New Jersey, just to the south of New York City. He had more than 100 ships carrying around 10,000 soldiers. This looked pretty intimidating to the Continentals and militia preparing to defend the city. But this was only the first phase. General Howe would await the arrival of his older brother, Admiral Howe, 
with a larger fleet, as well as General Clinton and his army returning from the Carolinas. Over the next month, the Patriots in New York would simply watch the enemy fleet grow and grow and grow. Howe was not yet ready to engage the enemy, but he also did not plan to leave his sick men stuck aboard ship for weeks as they awaited the remainder of their invasion force. He landed his force on Staten Island, where his men could camp and forage for fresh food. At the time, Staten Island was fairly lightly populated, with less than 3,000 people, and ruled by a handful of prominent families who tended to be loyalists. While the Patriots had been trying to round up loyalists in much of the region, as well as build defenses to oppose a British landing, they had pretty much left Staten Island alone. The smaller islands in and around New York Harbor had been under the guns of the small British fleet that had been in New York's harbor for the previous couple of years. On July 2nd, General Howe began to disembark his troops on Staten Island, facing no military resistance, only a miserable rainstorm. The army set up camp and waited. Almost all of the 500 or so adult males on the island signed oaths of loyalty to the king. The locals happily sold food to the hungry army. After a few weeks, one officer commented on the good food and comforts of the island, which had a noticeably good effect on the soldiers. They seemed more energetic and in high morale. According to the officer, one measure of this improvement was the increased number of rapes reported by locals against soldiers. He noted that because the locals failed to bear these attacks with resignation, he got to hear quite a few interesting court-martials. Yes, comments like this would probably get any officer kicked out of the army today, but the army of the 1770s still had a long way to go in sensitivity towards women's issues. In any event, the army was regaining its strength and vigor, and the rapes did not seem to create too much ill will among the locals, at least not any that would induce them to change sides. Staten Island became a comfortable base of operations for the British. About the same time General Howe was approaching New York, his brother Admiral Howe arrived in Halifax, up in Canada. Having found that the general had already departed, Admiral Howe immediately set sail down the coast toward New York. While en route, Admiral Howe attempted to work out a proclamation to encourage the Patriots to surrender, accept a pardon, and return to British authority. Although he had no political concessions to offer, Howe relied on the threat of military force to convince the rebels to give up their cause. If one is faced with the destruction and confiscation of all property, the rape of one's family, and possibly being hanged, accepting that Parliament can levy a three-cent tax on a pound of tea does not seem that outrageous an alternative. As I've mentioned before, some officers thought they should terrorize the populace until they submitted. Admiral Howe thought otherwise. He believed that the mere sight of the military force would be intimidating enough. The leaders had to show mercy and magnanimity so that the rebels would accept that surrender would not be so bad after all. Howe had prepared not only a public proclamation, but wrote letters to the colonial governors, the royal governors, of course, not these provincial leaders pretending to be governors, as well as to his friend Benjamin Franklin. 
You may recall that Howe and Franklin had spent months trying to work out a peace deal in 1774 and 1775 before Franklin finally left England to return to Pennsylvania. Howe hoped his old friend would assist in bringing the conflict to a peaceful conclusion. Admiral Howe's fleet encountered several Patriot ships along the way. His fleet captured a Nantucket whaler. Howe released the ship and even gave the captain a bottle of brandy to show his good intentions. A day later, he encountered a ship smuggling goods in violation of the Prohibitory Act. Again, Howe released the ship and allowed it to keep its cargo. Howe attempted to give these captains copies of his proclamations to spread among the colonies. However, no one wanted them. They feared they might be prosecuted for collaborating with the enemy. Unfavorable wind and poor weather slowed Admiral Howe's approach to New York. It also didn't help that his navigator mistook Nantucket Island for Long Island, taking the fleet off course. Finally, on July 12th, the first of Admiral Howe's fleet would arrive at Staten Island. Ships would continue to dribble in over the next few weeks. But even with over 21,000 soldiers now, the Howe brothers continued to wait. They were expecting nearly 3,000 more soldiers from General Clinton's mission in the Carolinas, as well as about 8,000 Hessian mercenaries still on their way from Europe. So the Howe brothers sat and waited. This also began a pretty familiar theme for the Howe offensives. Neither Admiral Howe nor General Howe seemed in any hurry to defeat the rebels. They moved slowly and methodically to win their battles. They never moved quickly or rashly to take advantage of surprise or confusion. Remember, General Howe commanded the British attack at Bunker Hill. He was not inclined to charge his men into an entrenched enemy and face another slaughter. He preferred to move on the enemy using care to protect his advancing forces. Moving slowly against the enemy on their own terms meant that the British could be assured of victory. It also meant that while they could win the battle, they could not capture the enemy army. Now, many have argued that the Howes did not want to win, that they generally favored the American cause and did not want to crush the colonists. I don't think they deliberately set out to lose the war, but they also did not seem intent on crushing the enemy either. They seemed to think that at some point the rebellion would fall apart on its own after a series of battlefield losses. They did not want a massacre that would create decades of resentment in the colonies. Rather, if they could simply show the colonists that defeat was inevitable and that the terms of surrender were not so bad, that most of them would voluntarily return to the fold. In hindsight, it was a pretty poor strategy, but at the time it seemed reasonable to many. Some have attributed another reason to General Howe's slow pace. While in Boston, Howe had met Elizabeth Loring. Elizabeth, or Betsy, had married Joshua Loring, Jr., the son of a British naval officer. By most accounts, Joshua, Jr. was a dirtbag. He had held a number of minor positions in the Massachusetts government and had left Boston with the other Tories in the evacuation of Halifax. Before the war, he had served as sheriff in Massachusetts, during which time he got a reputation for ripping off suspected criminals and enriching himself. During the British occupation of Boston and in Halifax, 
he made money by supplying liquor to the British Army. As a military contractor, he had great incentive to ingratiate himself with General Howe. There are no verifiable records of the gossip of the day, but apparently Mrs. Loring had a bit of a reputation as a slut even before she met Howe in Boston. Some contend that she had been the mistress of Dr. Joseph Warren, who died leading the Patriots on Bunker Hill. Mercy Otis Warren also wrote a play in 1772 that subtly made fun of her reputation for sleeping around. Whatever her background, it seems that she began an affair with General Howe that became pretty open and notorious. Her husband, Joshua, seemed to tolerate the affair, eventually being compensated with an appointment as commissary of prisoners. The job had decent pay, but Loring enriched himself even more by embezzling money allocated for the feeding and care of American prisoners of war. Loring grew rich while hundreds of prisoners literally starved to death. General Howe, in turn, seemed willing to overlook these crimes against humanity as long as Loring let him enjoy sexual favors with his wife. Partly as a result of this comfortable arrangement, General Howe was in no hurry to see the war come to an end. At that point, he would have to return home to his older wife. Instead, he was enjoying long nights of attending shows, drinking, gambling, and sex. While the Howe brothers seemed in no real hurry to do much of anything, some of their junior officers were chomping at the bit. On July 12th, only a few hours before Admiral Howe arrived, the 44-gun Phoenix and the 20-gun Rose and three smaller British ships caught a favorable wind and sailed up the Hudson River, past Fort Washington and Fort Independence. The Patriots had just built these two forts for the specific intent of keeping the British Navy from being able to sail up the river. The Patriot batteries fired on the ships, but inflicted only minimal damage to the rigging. One sailor had to have his leg amputated. The Patriots did more damage to themselves. The inexperienced artillery crews managed to blow up at least one gun. They tried to load a powder charge without swabbing the barrel first. As a result, the powder ignited from a spark still in the barrel from the previous shot, killing six crew members and seriously wounding several others. According to some accounts, the crew had been getting drunk and hanging out at the whorehouses at the Holy Ground before they spotted the British ships. So in addition to their inexperience, their drunkenness may also have contributed to the fatal accident. The artillery was also commanded by an inexperienced 19-year-old who had been a college student only a few months earlier. Fortunately for Captain Alexander Hamilton, the Continental Army offered lots of second chances after mistakes like this, and his leadership would improve over time. The British returned fire, mostly hitting buildings in New York, killing and wounding several civilians. For General Washington, this was not only a huge embarrassment, it proved that his defenses were worthless against the British Navy. They could sail up behind his forces and cut off his line of retreat whenever they wanted. He also had no idea what those ships planned to do. Some rumors suggested that they might be arming Tory regiments to launch an attack on Washington's rear. Others suggested that they might be on a mission to destroy some American ships under construction further upriver. They might also be trying to open lines of communication with General Burgoyne's forces, 
who could be moving south over Lake Champlain to complete the British plan of sealing off New England from the rest of the colonies. In fact, the British ships had no real plans at all other than to test American defenses. The ships remained upriver for a few weeks. The Patriots maintained men along shore to oppose any attempts at landing. After facing a failed Patriot raid against the ships and a failed attempt at sending fire ships at them, the British ships sailed back down the Hudson, leading to another minor firefight with the Continental Artillery before rejoining the main fleet off Sandy Hook. They did succeed, though, in proving to everyone that the American defenses were useless against the naval domination of the rivers around New York. The day after Admiral Howe arrived in Staten Island, he began distributing his proclamations as a peace commissioner, promising pardons to all who would swear allegiance to the king and making vague and exaggerating claims that he could negotiate a peace and bring the violence to an end. Howe was disappointed to hear that the Americans had just declared independence, but still pushed forward with his plans to settle the dispute without further bloodshed. General Washington used the opportunity to send General Howe a letter objecting to the treatment of American prisoners, particularly those currently being held in Canada. These men were now prisoners of war of an independent United States, not criminals. Admiral Howe then decided to send a letter under a flag of truce to George Washington Esquire. Washington's personal aide, Colonel Joseph Reed, refused to accept the letter because it was not addressed to General Washington. The British refused to recognize Washington's commission and could not put that title on the message without tacitly accepting that he was a legitimate commander of a legitimate army. A week later, on July 20th, General Howe sent his adjutant general, Lieutenant Colonel James Patterson, under a flag of truce to meet with Washington to discuss prisoners. The Americans blindfolded him and took him to meet with Washington. When he met with Washington, Patterson attempted once again to hand-deliver Howe's letter, now addressed to George Washington Esquire and etc. and etc., this time, Washington himself refused to accept the letter without the proper title. Patterson insisted the admiral meant no disrespect and that the etceteras were there to imply all appropriate titles. Washington said that, yes, they could mean anything and everything, but he would not even consider a negotiation until they recognized his proper title, which would implicitly mean recognizing American independence as well. Washington went on to tell Patterson that he understood the admiral's only real power was to grant pardons. No one wanted his pardons because they had not done anything wrong. Also, if the British wanted to negotiate any sort of political solution, they needed to do that with the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, not a military general. The meeting lasted several hours and was apparently reasonably cordial, but neither side seemed to be willing to do anything that would even begin any sort of peace talks. By late afternoon, Patterson put on his blindfold and was led back to the British ship, waiting to carry him back to the fleet. Admiral Howe was able to get his messages to Congress as well, but they also seemed to fall on deaf ears. Having already committed to independence, and with Howe having no real authority to offer any political reforms, Congress seemed in no mood to talk. Benjamin Franklin received a private letter from Howe, 
which he had published in the newspapers along with his reply. In his reply, Franklin noted that relations had grown so poisoned between the British and Americans that neither could ever trust the other again as fellow subjects. The only way the British could hope to govern America was to break the spirit of the people with the severest tyranny. Clearly, Franklin's message was aimed more at Americans who were considering the negotiation option more than it was to Admiral Howe. But it did make clear that the time for talk was over. Only the force of arms would decide anything going forward. With talks going nowhere, the Howes awaited the arrival of their remaining troops. On July 31st and August 1st, the fleet arrived from South Carolina with Admiral Peter Parker, General Henry Clinton, General Lord Cornwallis, and 3,000 regulars, following their defeat at Fort Sullivan in South Carolina. On August 14th, the fleet carrying the 8,000 Hessians arrived. The soldiers disembarked at Staten Island following a long and difficult crossing. So by this time, the Howe brothers had about 32,000 soldiers under their command, as well as 10,000 sailors and more than 400 ships, all ready to attack New York and begin the reconquest of America. With peace negotiations at an impasse, the Howes decided it was time to use their army. Next week, though, before we get into the invasion of Long Island, I want to move south again. The British had failed to establish a base along the Carolina coast, but they stirred up the Cherokee along the western frontier to fight the Patriots. So next week, we'll take a look at the Patriot attempts to crush the Cherokee uprising. Hey, thanks for joining another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to my book, I want to thank Roger Williams, who just supported the podcast on Patreon at the Privy Council level. Roger runs a site called 10crucialdays.org, which covers the 10 days following Washington's crossing of the Delaware, something we'll be probably covering on this show in about five or six months. I, of course, also want to thank our Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon, Mark Vanderberg, who runs Colonial Theater on the air. His site is colonialradio.com. Colonial Theater, as I've mentioned before, makes great audio stories on a wide range of topics. I've been listening to some of their historical fiction, particularly a show called Ticonderoga, set in the French and Indian War. The interplay between the British, the colonists, and Native Americans really comes to life in this story. It's available on Audible, on iTunes, which is actually now transitioning to Apple Books, and if you're really old school, you can still buy it on CD on Amazon. Again, go to colonialradio.com for all the details. I've also put a link on my own site, amrevpodcast.com. So this week we enter a new chapter of the war. The British start their campaign to retake the colonies after an embarrassing withdrawal from Boston a few months earlier. In the meantime, they now face a newly declared independent United States, something they hope to crush in its infancy. We also now have General William Howe working with his brother Admiral Richard Howe not only to win the war, 
but work out a peace that can repair the relationship between Britain and the colonies. The first step in the British plan is capturing New York City as a base of operations. In today's episode, we just landed the British Army in Staten Island so that they could begin to prepare for the full invasion. I'm going to be talking about the series of battles around New York and New Jersey for the next few months. There are a great many books that focus on this particular era of the war, so I'll have quite a few to recommend over these episodes. Today's pick is a book called Under the Guns, New York, 1775-1776, by Bruce Bliven Jr. As you can guess from its title, the book focuses on the year leading up to the British invasion. It begins with the difficult struggles in the city following Lexington and Concord, and how that affected the New York Patriots versus the British Tories still in the city, and it ends with the British finally landing at Staten Island. Bliven wrote a great many history books, particularly about New York, where he lived most of his life, and a great many of those books were about the Revolutionary War era. Most of his books were shorter books meant for primary school students. Under the Guns, however, first published in 1972, is a longer book with a more detailed look at events. Bliven unfortunately passed away in 2002. His book gives a great background on New York during the pre-occupation era with lots of good detail in its more than 350 pages. So if you're interested in more of that, definitely get his book. My online recommendation this week is a website called Revolutionary War and Beyond. The website is revolutionary-war-and-beyond.com. And if you didn't get that, I will again have a link on my website, nrefpodcast.com. The site itself has lots of great articles on the revolution. My favorite section on the site is the section containing source documents. These are transcriptions of many source documents from the era, many of which are hard to find elsewhere. I've also provided many links to various articles on the website as they come up on my blog. Uh, So kudos to Jax Hunter, the woman behind this great website. And if you're interested in checking out her work, go to revolutionarywarandbeyond.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.